us to be able to understand, and um, we just praise you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's get started. Throughout history, many national and international organizations have arisen in an effort to provide open discussions and develop plans to move toward global peace. People have always desired to live in peaceful communities without the threat of nuclear weapons, hate crimes, violence, and war. Despite their best efforts, no organization has provided a solution to the struggles that have occurred among the nations throughout history. As Christians, we understand that as long as there is sin in the world, there will be no real peace. Yet, there will be a time when one comes on the scene and provides people with what they're looking for, resolution to all of their conflicts, peace. From our study in Revelation, we know there will be a time of false peace on the earth that will be ushered in during the first half of the tribulation period. We learned about this false peace in chapter 6 of Revelation with the first seal being opened. One person is able to bring about world peace, and he will be recognized and highly acclaimed for this seemingly impossible feat. As Michelle stated in her lecture, this man comes into the world as a leader and dictator. And a study of Daniel 9 and 11 shows us that he makes a covenant with Israel, and he will provide a peaceful solution to all their conflicts. He will be embraced. This was our first introduction to the Antichrist. Then in chapter 11, it is the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, or the abyss, who kills the two witnesses. This is the first mention of the Antichrist as the beast, which indicates a shift in his nature at this time. The one who initially came in peace will show his true colors and will be demonically possessed to bring about the satanic evil destruction that will be unleashed during the second half of the tribulation. Today's study is on this beast along with a second beast who will be his religious cohort. Thus far in our study of the tribulation, we have seen each seal and trumpet judgment and the increasing devastation behind them. When we last met, Michelle explained that beginning in chapter 12, we're in a parenthetical portion of scripture that is explaining the characters who play an integral part in the destruction during the last three and a half years of the tribula tribulation. As one commentator I read put it, the seventh trumpet has opened the way for a revelation of the seven bowl judgments. But for that revelation to be meaningful, a sketch of the hidden forces behind this great climax of human history and the personages that play a part in that climax is necessary. In chapter 12, we saw the dragon, who is Satan, waging war on the woman, who is the nation of Israel. Michelle discussed Satan's goal in the last half of the tribulation being to eradicate all Jews and all who love the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. In the last verse of chapter 12, we're told, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Today, we are looking at chapter 13, where we will continue our study of the evil forces and personages behind the scenes during the end of the tribulation period. It's important as we go through this chapter to remember that Satan's ultimate goal is to be like God. 
We know this from Isaiah 14, verses 13 to 14, where speaking of Satan, it says, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. As we discuss this chapter, keep this in mind. Satan desires to be like God. So he is doing everything in his power to confuse the world and coerce them into satanic worship. Satan's days are numbered. He knows his time is short. And these beasts are his very last effort to bring down as many people as he can with him. Remember, he wants to be like our holy God who consists of three persons, God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. In his attempt to make himself like the Most High, Satan imitates the threefold Godhead, utilizing the beasts we will look at today to create this, his unholy trinity, which consists of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. But as we look at this last effort of Satan, we need to also keep in mind, as we will see throughout our study, that despite Satan's most horrific efforts, God's sovereign plan of salvation cannot and will not be thwarted. We studied in our lesson this week two beasts, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Today we're going to see their characteristics and the characters of each beast. First, we see the characteristics of the first beast, the Antichrist. In verse 1, we see its derivation, out of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. There are two main points of view with what the sea represents here. Some say the sea represents the sea of nations as seen in Isaiah 17, 12, Daniel 7, 2, and 3, and Revelation 17, 15, which would indicate that the beast is a man who rises out of the troubled nations of the world. Another explanation says the sea is symbolic of the abyss and carries the Old Testament concept of the sea as the source of satanic sea monsters as seen in Job chapter 26, Psalm 74, Isaiah 27. I lean more towards the second view because both Revelation, 7, Revelation 11, verse 7, and 17, verse 8, state that the beast comes from the abyss. Whichever way you believe, it does not take away from the beast's description which follows. So next we see the description. With ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a, its feet were like a bear's, and its mountain was like a lion's mouth. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So this ferocious beast that John sees has ten horns with ten diadems and seven heads with blasphemous names. The beginning of this beast's description here is very similar to that of the dragon, which shows the close relationship that they have. In the description of the dragon in chapter 12, we saw he had seven heads, and we learned these represented seven successive world monarchies, being Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then one final kingdom, which is yet to come. These will be discussed further in chapter 17, but the last monarchy that is yet to come 
is this worldwide bestial empire that we have a description of here in chapter 13 of Revelation. This description of seven heads shows the satanic forces of evil behind each of these monarchies in addition to the totality of evil incorporated into this one final beast. The difference in descriptions between this beast in chapter 13 and the dragon in chapter 12 would be John pointing out the ten horns of the beast before the seven heads. In addition, the diadems of the beast are placed on the horns and not the heads. This reversal of wording and shifting of diadems seems to denote that the horns of this beast are significant in understanding the dynamics behind his power and reign. We're given an explanation of these horns in Revelation 17, where we're told they represent 10 kings who have not yet received royal power during the time that this revelation was given to John. We see that the last monarchy will be a worldwide empire made up of a confederacy of 10 kings. To gain even more insight into the significance of this and how it ties together with the beast in our study, we need to look at Daniel chapter 7, which was part of our reading with the lesson this week. Stick with me. It'll make sense, (laughs) I hope. The description of the first beast in Revelation 13 closely resembles the last beast in Daniel chapter 7, which also has 10 horns. In his vision, Daniel is given a description of four beasts that represent four empires, which reveal to Daniel the rise and the fall of nations throughout history. He saw a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a terrible, dreadful, exceedingly strong beast. You may notice that these animals are the same animals used to describe parts of the beast in Revelation 13. We know from Daniel that the lion represents Babylon, the bear is the Medes and Persians, the leopard is Greece, and the last beast is Rome. Each of these empires replaced the previous one. But this last beast of the Roman Empire has some interesting characteristics that are explained in Daniel chapter 7, which have not occurred yet in history, and therefore point to a future kingdom and its ruler. The last beast in Daniel 7 has 10 horns that are explained as being 10 kings, which has not occurred in the Roman Empire. We're told in Daniel that another little horn arises and defeats three of its horns. This little horn closely resembles descriptions of the beast in Revelation 13, and that he will make war against the saints and speak words against the Most High and will do so for three and a half years. This little horn in Daniel is the Antichrist. And after studying Daniel chapter 7 and putting this vision together with what is given in Revelation, it is apparent that the Antichrist rises up and defeats three of the ten kings which are part of the last world empire in Revelation. Because the fourth beast in Daniel represents the Roman Empire, and since much of what was in Daniel's vision on this fourth beast has not occurred with Rome, Many scholars believe that this future empire in Revelation will be a revived Roman Empire. Given the descriptions and references to this beast also having characteristics of a man and even being referred to with masculine pronouns, it might be best to view the beast in Revelation chapter 13 as representing both a world empire that has the strength of all the previous empires combined 
and a man who rises up over the 10 kings of the last world empire to rule as the predominant force of the world. Just as we equate Hitler with the Third Reich, this beast can be equated with his last empire. They are one and the same. This beast has been given power, his throne, and great authority by Satan himself. So this beast rising up out of the sea with ten horns and diadems and seven heads with blasphemy that looks like a leopard, has feet like a bear, and a mouth like a lion is a world empire so dreadful as to have all the evil satanic powers of historical empires rolled into one entity. And it is ruled by a man who we know as the Antichrist. Remember, this is all part of Satan's last-ditch effort and his plan to take over the throne of God, so he creates a beast to be a counterfeit Christ. And we see more of this as we move into the next verses, where, we'll, where we will see one last aspect of the description in his mortal wound. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The wording here for the mortal wound literally means, as slain unto death, which closely resembles the wording of the lamb in chapter 5, who carried the scars of death. In his commentary on Revelation, Robert Thomas states, so the head, like the lamb, has sustained a mortal wound. The fact that he was slain points to a violent death of the head. But the likeness indicated as slain indicates a restoration to life. He goes on to say that this is all part of the dragon's attempt to counterfeit the death and resurrection of Christ. Much has been speculated regarding this mortal wound, and you probably discussed some possibilities in your breakout groups. Regardless of the specifics of exactly how this beast overcomes this fatal wound, we know from Scripture that it brings the Antichrist to the forefront of the world, and they will marvel at this counterfeit resurrection, which will lead to their worship of him. The world will see a man who they believe has come back to life, and they will be so amazed at this impossibility that it will cause them to worship, saying, who is like the beast? This worship of the beast is, at its core, just as we are told here, satanic worship. Being the one behind the beast and his power and authority, Satan is the one these people ultimately worship. We will see later in this chapter that it is the second beast who stirs up the people to this worship, but it's important to make a note here that this worship is utter blasphemy. Throughout scripture, the one true God is worshiped through exclamations of, who is like you? And here, we have a worldwide mockery of worship of the one true God being mimicked through this worldwide deception of the satanic beast. As a result of this extraordinary display of a counterfeit resurrection, people will believe that this beast, the Antichrist, is untouchable, which is evident in their asking, who can fight against it? Next, we move into looking at the character of the first beast. We see his powerful pride. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 
42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. We have already seen that this beast has heads with blasphemous names on them, so this whole worldwide empire will be filled with blasphemy. And now we're told about the beast himself uttering blasphemies against God and those who dwell in heaven. His speech is boastful as he proudly displays himself to be the one that should be worshipped. Paul speaks of Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4. And from there we see that he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. At some point in his rule, the Antichrist will, rot, will set himself up to be God and arrogantly expect all to worship him as God. This is what Satan wants, to be God. So he possesses a man, this beast, who will set himself up to be God. He will then wage war on the saints, also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of, life of the Lamb who was slain. Making war on the saints is exactly what we read this beast did when he killed the witnesses. And now this beast, the Antichrist, wages war on the rest of the woman's seed, referred to here as saints, those who did not escape the reach of the dragon in chapter 12. We already saw in our discussion that he will incorporate all the evil of past empires embodied into one ferocious beast, and all of this evil is directed toward the remainder of the saints on earth who do not worship him. I think about the evils we have seen in the Hamas attack on Israel, and I can't imagine the horrors and atrocities that will take place as the Antichrist will embody all of the evils of history combined. In the midst of all of this, it's important to make special note that God is the one who is allowing this to occur. We see in verse 5, the beast is allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. God steps aside and allows the beast to have worldwide authority and all those who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. All those, we are told, except the elect. Again, I want to point out that this is God's eternal plan of salvation, and we can see that from the statement, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This statement clearly shows that God has an eternal sovereign plan for his elect. And during this time, he will enable them to stand firm in their beliefs and not bow down and worship the Antichrist. It will be a time of unparalleled evil as the beast wages this war against the saints. Many will be taken captive and many will die. God in his sovereignty has allowed the beast to do these activities. God is still on his throne and his sovereign plan of salvation and a future kingdom will not be thwarted. And, his mercy, and in his mercy, he limits the time of this horrific evil to the last three and a half years of the tribulation. 
It brings to mind the verses in Matthew 24, 22, where it says, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. God, in his mercy, shortens these days. And in verse 9 and 10, he gives these tribulation saints encouragement to accept this cruel treatment of the beast as being his sovereign will for them at this time. When he says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. One side note here about verse 9. You may recognize the, the call. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. From the first few chapters of Revelation. The call here is different in that the phrase, what the Spirit says to the churches, has been removed. This would coincide with the promise in Revelation 3.10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This is the hour of trial, and the church has been removed. So this verse is an encouragement to the tribulation saints, those who have come to faith in the midst of the tribulation. And it's explaining that some of these saints will be taken captive by the beast, while Others will be killed, and God tells them, in essence, it will be okay. Persevere through it, because in the end, God's plan will not and cannot be overcome by Satan's attempts. Satan may take their physical life from this earth, but they have eternal life, and they will spend it with the one true God who shall reign forever and ever. So this is the first beast. He is the prideful, powerful ruler of a worldwide wicked empire who ushers in unprecedented evil during the last half of the tribulation. He will be a ruler like our world has never seen before, and he will have a cohort, a second beast, who is described to us in the remaining of this chapter. We have seen the characteristics and the character of the first beast, and now we will look at the characteristics and the character of the second beast, the false prophet, as he will be called in chapters 16, 19, and 20. So the characteristics of the second beast, first we look at his derivation out of the earth. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. This beast is different from the first beast because he is seen as coming from out of the earth and not the sea. Some believe this reference to the earth points to a Jewish man since reference to the land and scripture often represents the nation of Israel. Other thoughts have arisen for the meaning behind his coming from the earth, but one commentator I read explained it this way. In the minds of the ancients, none of the terrestrial animals could compare in magnitude with monsters from the deep. So coming out of the earth in itself indicated a degree of inferiority and power of the second beast to the first. We will see this inferiority of this beast as we look further at his description. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Having two horns like a lamb seems to suggest a much less ferocious-looking beast, for sure, which points to a man having mannerisms that will be more subtle and gentle than the first beast. But he will speak like a dragon and will be Satan's mouthpiece. He will be the epitome of the false prophets that Jesus warned of when he said in Matthew 7, verse 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. As we look at his, char 
His character in the next verses, we will see how his speech is so powerfully persuasive that he causes the world to worship the Antichrist. Verses 12 through 6, 18. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Sorry. Also, it causes both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. From these verses, we see that the false prophet will be a powerful and persuasive man who influences the whole world into worship of the Antichrist. The wording in verse 12 suggests that as a result of the miraculous healing of the Antichrist, the people will worship him, and they have been persuaded into this worship by the second beast, the false prophet. This is all part of Satan's counterfeit trinity at work. Just as Jesus died and rose again, The Antichrist will suffer a death blow and appear to be resurrected. Just as the Holy Spirit guides Christians into worship of Jesus, this false prophet will direct the world into worship of the Antichrist. If you think about this, the false prophet will come on the scene at a time during the tribulation when people will be seeking answers. They will wonder what's going on with all of the death and judgments coming down, and this gentle man will convince them that he has all the answers. John MacArthur puts it this way, quote, he will offer them hope, hope to a pained world if they will just worship the Antichrist. He will be powerfully persuasive, but his voice is the voice of hell, and hell can speak blasphemy or it can speak subtle deception, end of quote. The false prophet will exercise the same power and authority as the Antichrist, and with it he will deceive the world. The first beast trusts the second beast and gives him authority to carry out his plans. Ultimately, this authority is from Satan. He is Satan's third person in his unholy trinity. He causes the whole world to believe in and worship the Antichrist. One world religion is right here, and it is accomplished by this powerfully persuasive false prophet. He uses his demonic power to perform signs that the people marvel over. He will perform miracles in the eyes of the people by causing fire to come down from heaven to earth. This is Satan's attempt to authenticate this false prophet in the eyes of the people by mimicking the signs of the two witnesses from chapter 11, in addition to possibly causing some to think that he is the return of Elijah the prophet who made fire come down from heaven. The Jews would be looking for Elijah's return as promised in Malachi 4-5 where it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Not only will this false prophet make fire come down from heaven, but he will also convince the world to create an image of Antichrist. By divine allowance, the false prophet will cause this image to speak 
and all those who do not worship the image will be put to death. This goes hand in hand with the Antichrist setting himself up as God and demanding the world worship him. We're told in verse 15 that the false prophet was allowed to give breath to the image. This was a divine allowance that once again shows that everything is in God's sovereign control. The last effort that the false prophet undertakes through his powers of persuasion is causing all people on earth to be marked on their right hand or their forehead in order to buy or sell anything. No one will be excluded from having to take this mark. If you want to buy or sell anything, you have to have the mark of the beast. It's not difficult in today's technological society to see how something like this will take place. Currently, we're able to purchase anything with the swipe of a card or the tap of our phone. Amazon has stores open now where there are no registers and no cashiers. You just pick up your items, and through the app, the store registers what you've taken off the shelf, and as you exit the store, your account will be charged accordingly. The technology is in place. We do not know exactly what this number means or how to calculate it, and for us, it doesn't matter. But at the time this is taking place, those who are saved and reading God's word will know exactly what this is, and they will understand it, and it will provide insight to them as to the identity of the Antichrist. The false prophet will be behind the deception that this mark of the beast is a good thing to accept. It will also be understood that receiving this mark shows loyalty to the beast, the false prophet will use his evil powers of forceful persuasion to attempt to coerce all who are living at this time to worship the beast and be sealed with his mark. Once again, Satan is mimicking God with a seal for his followers. But unlike God's seal of eternal security, this mark of the beast is a permanent mark of doom for those who do not believe. Today, we've been given a look at all the evil plans of Satan to take over the world and attempt to rule and reign in place of God. He desires to be God, and so he will use two men to create a satanic unholy trinity. We saw today that the Antichrist will be a prideful, powerful beast who embodies all the evil satanic powers of previous world empires, and he will be helped by an equally powerful yet very persuasive man who will guide the world into worship of the Antichrist. It seems as though Satan gets what he wants. The world will worship him as God. Yet we have all also seen all of this is in God's total sovereign control, and no plan of Satan's is able to overthrow God's eternal plan of salvation. I can only imagine what saints going through the tribulation will think as they pick up the Bible and read these chapters. It will be so clear to them that the one true God, whose very word they are reading, has a plan for them has had a plan for them all along. And it will encourage them that no matter how terrible it gets, nothing they are enduring is out of God's ultimate good and eternal plan for them. But what about us today? What do we gain from this study? After studying this chapter and thinking of the last lecture that I had the opportunity to give, there is such an obvious contrast to the worship on earth in chapter 13 and the worship in heaven in chapter 4 and 5. In chapter 13, we see two beasts and their evil forces that demand to be worshipped for the satanic fabrication of an unholy trinity, which lead to eternal damnation. And in chapter 4 and 5, we see the one true God in all his glory, and we see the Lamb who was slain for sinners, both being 
willingly worshiped for their worthiness and praised for their eternal life that is given to all those who believe. The thought of unsaved family members and friends and possibly even some ladies here going through this time should motivate us to continue to witness and pray for the salvation of the lost. My prayer is that each of you is confident that you will be saved from this hour of trial and therefore can praise God that he has saved you and that you will be kept from this horrific time. If you are not confident in this, I urge you to make this the day of your salvation. Repent of your sins and believe and worship the one true God. Ladies, we see here there's no middle ground. In the end, you will either worship Satan or you will worship the one true God who is seated on his throne. Choose this day whom you will serve. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for this word, for your word, Lord. And I just thank you so much for saving me. Lord, thank you that I will not experience this. And I just ask that each and every lady here has that same assurance of eternal security, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.